this can have uh, the very various side effects. It can make you drowsy, dizzy, um, sleepy, or it can um, uh, it can develop sleeplessness. Yeah, that was on there. You had you had both. It can make you drowsy or it can make you sleepless. Well, which is it? Am I going to have a battle inside of me between sleep and wake? And yeah, they've always made me drowsy. Yeah. Yeah, it put, it put my brain to sleep a long time ago and it hadn't awakened yet. Okay. Well, it's about time Jeff got here so we could get started. morning without coughing once. Maybe I have to get back in fellowship before that will work again. Okay, you ready, Eddie? I think I'm ready. All right. Let's uh, start a little late, but let's uh, go ahead and start in prayer. Have a few moments of silent prayer first so we make sure we're ready, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're thankful we had this time to get together and to uh, discuss the understanding of your word in terms of its application. Father, we pray that you would help us to think in terms of how the word affects us, that going through the whole process, that ultimate goal is transformation, and that we need to be transformed from the inside out. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through what it, what it means and how it means to think about application. Uh, as we study these things tonight, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, I want to go over some things in to begin with in Hendrick's book. In the, I think on page, my book, it's on page 318 under, uh, it's chapter 43, dealing with uh, principles that govern principles. And just give us a couple of things to, to think through in terms of some of the things that he is saying. For example, he gives his first first principle that principles should correlate with the general teaching of Scripture. This is, in some books on Bible study methods, this whole concept of correlation is a separate category. Not only do you have uh, the category of observation, interpretation, but before you get to uh, application, they'll insert another area, which is correlation. And correlation, I really see as part of the process of interpretation under a principle known as the analogy of Scripture. 
Now, I never heard that term when I had interpretation when I was at Dallas, and I didn't discover it until I was reading some things by Bob Thomas on interpretation much later. But I always heard that what it means, which is you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, we always have to be careful how we compare Scripture with Scripture, because there's a legitimate and an illegitimate way to compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells uh, husbands that they are to love their wives as, uh, as their own bodies. For no one hates his own body but loves it and cherishes it. But you're to love your wife as your own body. But over in 1 Corinthians, he tells us that he beats his body into submission. So we have to be cautious as to exactly how we apply the principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, same is true for just taking Scripture out of context. We have to understand the meaning of each passage within its context. And sometimes I spend a lot of time doing this when we go through various passages so that we can not just run through passages that seem to say the same thing, although for sake of time we do that a lot. But uh, sometimes I will slow down and we'll look at each correlating passage to make sure we understand it in context so that they're not just just verses. I think... Uh, depending on what your church background is, but I think most of us and most people coming from different church backgrounds, different whether it's a doctrinal church or, or whatever their background was, people will give uh, often give a statement, pastors will give a statement, and then they'll give a string of verses. And how many times have we written down principles or points and then you know five references afterwards, and we never look at those passages? And that's one of the reasons that I take the time to put those, at least put those passages up on the screen so that people see what those uh, corollary passages are and at least read through them, even if we don't have time to uh, go and look them up uh, individually. But under this principle, uh, Hendricks argue, uh, argues that principles should correlate with the general teaching of Scripture. So once again, it goes back to that principle of the analogy of uh, Scripture and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So I'm going to go over here to Lagos, and I'm going to open up uh, uh, New King James. Uh, how many of y'all have Lagos? I know, Greg, you do. Uh, Pat, Barb. Do you have it, Jeff? Not yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, there'll be a Lagos rep at the conference. And they'll be offering a discount. 50%? No. But they will be offering a discount, so that's really the time to get it. Okay, that's just, just a, a, a word of warning. Uh, so you'll be prepared. Um, now, he, he starts off here looking at Proverbs Proverbs 20, verse 2. Now, you often read that on the screen, right? You have good eyes. There we go. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever uh, provokes him to anger sins against his own life. 
So uh, he says he generalizes from Proverbs 20, verse 2, that believers should show respect toward governmental authorities. Uh, the wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him, that is a king, to anger, sins against his own life. In other words, if you anger the governmental authority, then they'll come down on you. What's a good application from that? I'm not looking at you. I'm just, what's a good application that just came to my mind? Yeah, pay your taxes. Don't irritate the IRS. Yeah, obey the law. Um, so he, he then goes on to say, if that were the only text in the Bible that spoke to that issue, I would need to be cautious about pressing the point too heavily. But a concordance tells me that many other passages reinforce the principle, such as um, Romans 13, 1 through 7 and 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Uh, so I feel confident applying Proverbs 22 in that manner. I would look at this and t- think in terms of an application of that principle that it is a subset of the doctrine of respect for government authority. Uh, then he goes on to say, Likewise, Paul addresses the issue of meat sacrifice to idols in Romans 14. And Daniel has counterparts in Joseph, Esther, and Nehemiah who also serve pagan governments yet maintain their integrity and godly character. Anybody, anybody read that and have a question with it about it? I certainly had questions about that. Um, he, he raises this issue. Paul addresses the issue of meat sacrificed to idols in Romans 14. Now, his first example, which talked about the government, was, was great, but here we have a different issue. This is the issue in relation to um, doubtful things. Now, Hendricks is going to refer to this example of Romans 14 a couple of different times in relation to these principles, so I thought this would be a good passage to look at, that he talks about the problem of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, part of what you have to do when you look at this is understand uh, the cultural background. In application, it's important to understand the cultural background of the audience to whom it's intended, and it's also important to understand the cultural background today. And we have to address the question of of, uh, when is it appropriate to generalize a universal principle And when is a mandate from Scripture narrowly restricted to a particular uh, point in time and a particular event in history? Now, as you go through Romans 14, it becomes clear that Paul is dealing with a specific issue. But then he, uh, as you go through the passage, he pulls back from that and he brings in the generalizing principles. So let's just kind of skim through the passage a little bit. He says, uh, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute, not to disputes over doubtful, uh, doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, so we have a situation here that that you have a person who's weak in the faith. That means they're they they, they haven't been taught well. They they have limited knowledge, limited understanding, and. 
And this can lead to disputes related to uh, doubtful things. In, in verse 2, he says, one believes he may eat all things. So you have a believer who's pretty strong, mature believer, doesn't see a problem eating anything. And then you have another one who has taken a vegetarian or vegan position, and he, he thinks it's only right to eat vegetables. He goes on to say, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So there are certain areas in life that are non-essentials, and they're not at the center of, of the Christian life. And so one believer may decide this is okay for me to do, and another believer may say, well, it's not okay for me to do. And so they shouldn't judge the other person on the basis of something that is not addressed specifically, uh, specifically in Scripture. And the fourth verse, he says, Who are you to judge another, another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made out to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Now, I don't know how long, if you remember this, I remember in some some groups, there was a lot of, uh, uh, and, and today regarding Halloween, there are some Christians who would never let their children do anything in relation to any kind of a Halloween party because it has occult overtones. And then there are others where it doesn't bother them at all. And I've seen people get all bent out of shape, you know, one to another, and usually each side has arguments that have convinced them, but it's not necessarily something that is addressed in Scripture. Uh, he observes a day, observes it to the Lord. He does not observe the day to, to the Lord. He does not observe it. Of course, here you, you could think of examples of people who try to observe some sort of sabbatical principle with relation to, to Sunday observance. He eats, eats to the Lord, for, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. His whole point in here is that in the first 13 verses is to set up the issue of, of not judging one another, and then he comes to the universal principle starting in chapter 14, where he t- starts talking about the, the really important thing, which is to treat one another in love. So, my question is, Paul addresses the issue of meat sacrifice to idols in Romans 14. Hendricks then says, and Daniel has counterparts in Joseph, Esther, and Nehemiah. Where did Daniel come from in that sentence? How does Daniel relate to Romans 14? I mean, I just read that paragraph and I went, where did Daniel come from in this? Obviously, there's an issue with, with diet. So we go back to Daniel chapter 1. See, my, my question here, what I'm challenging, is is this an appropriate application on Hendrick's part of Daniel to Romans 14? Because Romans 14 is dealing with an issue of Gentiles in the church who were not under any kind of dietary law uh, in the New Testament. But Daniel was under a dietary law. They were under the Mosaic law. He and his friends were under the, uh, the, the restrictions of the Mosaic law. And in Daniel chapter 1, they're being forced 
to eat the meat, the food that is being prepared in a non-kosher kitchen in the Babylonian palace. So I don't see any kind of comparison between Daniel and Romans 14 at all. Because Daniel is dealing with absolute mandates to the Jews to eat according to a strict diet. That would apply to both Esther and Nehemiah, but it wouldn't apply to Joseph because why? What Mosaic Law wasn't there yet. So I'm just I I just ended up being um, being very confused by this this paragraph, um, which is on page. Um, the top of page 319 in my book. So I, I just wasn't sure at all what that was about. So whether that was an editor error or what. So even I'm just pointing this out. This is why we need to think critically when we look at even people we trust to get certain things right that often uh, things aren't exactly right. Um, he goes on to say people get into trouble finding a principle from a single verse and then trying to build a whole doctrine on the basis of that one reference. Now, I know none of us know anyone who have ever heard a pastor ever do that. But there must be somebody out there. Don't laugh so much, Jeff. <laughs> Got to keep that poker face. But there are people that need to, need to uh, pay attention to that. If While it is a, a true principle that all God has to do is to mention it one time in Scripture for it to be true, be careful of certain things that are that you can only find support for in one place in Scripture. Most things that are significant are mentioned in several places. So don't try to build a doctrine just on any one particular point. Can I ask a question yeah. About that? Uh, I got in a discussion with a pastor one time, a former pastor I was under, about um, whether young newborns that die go to heaven or not and go back to David's child uh, with Bathsheba that died. Right. And now he said that I will see him again because he, he stopped uh, um, weeping, etc. after he died. He right. said that. Made statements that it's the only area where really that's directly addressed. And he's what he said. He said, well, that's the only where it's really directly addressed and all that because we were in this reformed Calvinistic discussion right. about, you know, yeah, and, and reform view is that some baby, some infants that die, there's no necessary edge of accountability. Some babies are elect and some aren't. There are um, other passages. If you, uh, Dr. Robert Leitner from Dallas Seminary has a whole book on that that's pretty good, and, and that shows that, that the, the issue is alluded to and dealt with in various other passages uh, in Scripture. That's the, probably the main text, but there are other passages that deal with that. Okay, his second point is that principles should speak to the needs, interests, questions, and problems of real life today. This is where we make, make the jump when we're, when we're extrapolating a general principle from Scripture. We see a specific thing taught in a specific passage that's, 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 um, <clears throat> that's uh, clearly related to a, a historical situation, a historical event, and how do we extrapolate that and bring that over uh, to, to a general principle. And I used the correlation last week between 2 Corinthians 7.14 and I think it's Jeremiah 17 that, that 2 Corinthians 7.14 is really a, an application of the general principle to Israel in a passage that is clearly, clearly structured around the Mosaic Law 
But Jeremiah 17 talks about the specifics that God says, if I if there's a nation that rejects me, then I will uh, judge them. But if they um, if they repent, then I will um, I will treat them with leniency. Uh, that's a rough paraphrase. So that's the general principle that's there. So we need to learn to extrapolate general principles. And a lot of times when we do that, uh, that will grow out of a study where we are comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, for example, this morning when I was in uh, Matthew five ten through 12, talking about persecution, just by doing a word study on the words for persecution and reading through various other passages, uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what you do is you develop uh, an understanding of what the general uh, principles are. And then when you can extrapolate from those general principles, uh, extrapolate from the text those general principles, then that helps you identify a point of application that we should embrace uh, persecution for Christ's sake because it is part of God's training program to build and train us for our future destiny in the millennial kingdom. So that becomes the application. And that helps us distinguish between two types of application. We have one type of application that I would call an internal application. And an internal application relates to how we think and it relates to our attitudes our mental attitude and our response to circumstances and situations. And then there are external applications which relate to dealing with things that we do, how we do things, um, relates to what we say, how we say it, and it has to do with external behavior. So we have application in two areas, and much of Scripture is related to how we think about the world, and it's not necessarily... Uh, the kind of thing that can be boiled down to, okay, now in light of this passage, go home and do these three things. We need to change the way we think about reality, which is uh, more abstract and difficult for some people to understand in terms of, of uh, application. Under his discussion on principles should speak to the needs, interests, questions, and problems of real life today is where he goes back to talking about the importance of cultural analysis. Romans 12.2 says that we're not to be conformed to the world. Well, to make sure we're not being conformed to the world, we need to understand the nature of the world around us. And the word there for world is not the word that we normally find uh, translated as world, which is cosmos, which has to do with an orderly structured system. But it's the word ionos, which is more of a time-based word. And often it is a synonym for cosmos, but there are differences. And so what ionos is, is emphasizing is, is the time, the, the, the temporal nature of this. So it's not just talking about the structure of the world system, but what is dominant during your lifetime, during your time period, what the uh, Germans refer to as the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. The current time frame. So um, we should analyze the culture around us. What are the trends of the culture around us? What are the things that are popular? What are the things that the culture is pressuring us to to value and to enjoy and to appreciate and to approve and to uh, validate? And we need to look at that and see how those values have been formed in us because we're all products of the culture. I've often wondered, I'm sure you have too, 
how remarkable it is that you'll find certain phrases or idioms that catch fire. And especially if you've raised teenagers, or you can remember back when you were a teenager, all of a sudden it's like all the teens in the country are using the same slang within you know, two months of each other. And, and that's, the, that's the spirit of the age. That, that comes out of the culture of the age. How is that communicated? And, and it, just, it just seems like it, it, it catches fire and sweeps from one end of the country to another. And, and the next thing you know, everybody's talking that way. Everybody's saying that, that, that kind of a thing. And, or, or maybe it's just an intonation like when, when people would say, whatever. You know, things like that just, just dominate. Well, they all reflect and, and, and affect certain attitudes in the culture. So we need to be uh, perceptive students of our culture and see how is it that we are being influenced, that our values, our thinking, our opinions are, are being shaped by the media, by uh, peers, by um, you know, people at work, the culture, the mini-culture that we're in in terms of our own families or, or um, uh, our work environment. third point he makes in terms of extrapolating to general principles is that principles should indicate a course of action. One of the things I've been trying to do a little more lately is uh, talk in terms of what's the action plan here. After we study something from Scripture, what's the action plan? What sh- how should this build out in our lives? How should this develop in our lives? Uh, last week, I think I used the illustration, uh, one time sitting in, in church and watching somebody write, no- write their notes sitting next to me, and when the pastor would give the principle, they would restate the principle in terms of an action plan. I need to do this. I need to do that. Instead of just saying, you know, making it a general principle like every believer should read their Bible every day, they would write down, I need to read my Bible every day and personalize those principles in terms of action. So uh, that's very important, not just to leave it as a point of academic truth, but to look at it in terms of, 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 um, of, of, of uh, a personal application. And I love this story. That this story, that Hendricks used to tell this story in class, and there was another story that he used to tell in class. And every now and then I have to remind myself, I, I never know, you never know who's in the congregation and what their background is. And we sometimes, I know I'm guilty of this, I think that most people that, that I talk to probably have a certain level of, of what I would consider to be common sense and common knowledge about about relationships and behavior. And he tells a story in here. How many of you all read through the chapter? John did. Nobody else did. He tells his story in here, and, and Hendricks for many, many years, probably for about three decades, was a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. And he had uh, regular Bible studies with the Dallas Cowboy football players. And he tells this story about being in a Bible study with the Cowboy football players, and he's teaching through the book of Ephesians, and he came to Ephesians chapter 5, and the passage tells husbands they're to love their wives. And this, this, uh, he says this big, hulking fellow finally grasped the significance of what Paul was saying, and he says, you mean I've got to love my wife? You mean I have to tell her? I mean, this was just like a blinding flash of just a huge revelation for this guy. I, I have to love my wife and I have to tell her. And he, he just, it just, it just almost knocked this guy down. And he realized that 
that he had to do this. And so he went home, and, and all day he's thinking about, how am I going to, I mean, he'd been married for years, and he had never told his wife that he loved her since the day they got married. And so he, he, gets, he goes home, and Hendrick says that he had a determination to tell his, his wife that he loved her, and, and all day he wrestled with this, and, and finally he just couldn't figure out how to do it, so he just got up from the dinner table and walked over and grabbed her and picked her up, and he says, said to her, Wife, I love you, and kissed her and put her back down in her chair. That's application of doctrine. But to many of us, that just seems so obvious and yet there are a lot of people to whom that kind of a thing is just, just it never, it's not in their background, no matter what their, what their background was, you never know. And uh, Hendricks also tells a story, now some of you will find this amusing, this had to have happened in the late 50s. Hendricks started teaching at Dallas, I think around 57 or 58, and, and he, he told this story, I heard it the first time in 76, I cannot imagine this story being being this this event being true after the early 60s and the love revolution but he tells a story about this seminary couple guy in seminary and and they came and they were having marriage problems and they had been married like a year or something they were they were just having a lot of frustration and it turned out after he had spent a three or four weeks counseling with them that no one had ever told them about sex. And and they were just having heavy make-out sessions for a year and a half. And and so Hendricks told, you know, Hendricks sat down and gave, gave them the birds and the bees talk and explained everything to them, and they went home and applied it that night. And the next day he said, it was like there was a bright light glowing from the back row in the classroom. <laughs> So that's application. It's amazing how you never realize how elementary some things may seem to us that for some people they're not that elementary. So it's always helpful just to break things down. Um, his next point is, um, um, oh, and I wanted to make another point. It's under his point that principles should indicate a course of action, he quotes from Peter Drucker. You know, this is one of the problems I've always had with, and I would put Hendricks in this, Peter Drucker. Anybody know who Peter Drucker was? Have you read that book on uh, the new evangelical spirituality? I've done a lot of study about his uh, being the core of uh, the church growth. Um, yeah, yeah, and he's not a believer. I mean, he was, he was a Jewish businessman that was a Buddhist, Buddhist agnostic, whatever, but he, um, this is told in a story by, um, uh, Paul Smith, who was uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's brother and one of the elders at Calvary Chapel, which went through a lot of problems because of all these things he develops in his book called the, I think it's the New Spirituality, and uh, he's uh, Paul Smith spoke at pre-trib, uh, 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 I think a year ago, and um, and and this is just just amazing because the influence of Peter Drucker and Peter Drucker is one of these guys who came has enormous amounts of money and influence and was a very popular business guru. And he came along in the uh, early 80s, and he realized that religion was the only thing that would really could really bring a unity to the uh, to, to the United States, and because we were really beginning to uh, fragment so much. And he he got behind 
uh, a young guy who was going to the school, taking some uh, some master's courses at the School of Missions at Fuller Seminary, which was a real source of a lot of problems. And, and uh, he put his money behind this guy and really promoted him to make him, you know, the purpose-driven pastor for the United States. And here is, you know, this comes out of Peter Drucker. And I remember back reading reading that book by Paul Smith about two years ago, and people like Peter Drucker and some other big names in, that were big names in Christianity uh, in terms of the whole church growth movement in the early early 70s. And I had gone to a conference up in uh, up in Wisconsin for Christian camping. And there were a number of people there, and they were all talking about, you've got to read Peter Drucker, you've got to read. This guy from Texas was from, uh, he wrote a book called New Wine and Old Wineskins. His name was Keith, can't remember his last name. He was from like Corpus, I think. And these were all these guys, and, and yet if you have, now we have like we're 40, 50 years down the road from those writings and those people, but they all led into the whole, you know, this whole um, um, church, the church growth movement, and then the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, what? Seeker sensitive, but beyond that, the, um, yeah, the emerging church movement. These guys are all influential in developing all of that. And unfortunately, Hendricks was a little cl- too close to some of those guys for some of us to be be comfortable and didn't have exercise enough discernment there. I just wanted to point that out as a, as a side note there. Um, okay. His next is multiplying the truth, where he talks about uh, application and uh, using this in terms of, of other people and using resources to teach other people. So those are his basic principles there in terms of of um, of just developing general principles for application and for study. Now, I'll go about five more minutes before we take our break. Another thing we need to, uh, in in light of what I've been talking in terms of universalizing a principle out of a passage, we need to make sure that in certain passages, what in the passage is universal and what in the passage is not, okay? I'm not in the book now. I'm just on other material. I could never find the date. Oh, okay. Previously, I was in Chapter 43, the principle of the thing. But now I'm now I'm off. I'm not in Hendrick's stuff. I'm moving on. Don't, you don't have a Chapter 43? I have 43 as customized Christianity. Oh, well. Are you in the workbook? No, she's in the book. Okay, so see, we have a Friday morning group that meets, and we're going through uh, Dillo's book on uh, Joseph Dillo's book on Final Destiny, and I think they're doing new things with publishing. They publish just enough, and then they publish a little more. Nobody in the group has a book that reads the same. I'll say I'll say we're on page 242, and I'm the only one who's got that material on page 242. Somebody's got it on 241. Somebody's got it on 243. Uh, the footnotes are different. Reads different. Forty six in that book. Okay, so that's that's forty six, and I've got forty three, both in my my hard copy and in my electronic version. Okay, well that's good. Glad you persevered. 
All right, so that need to make sure that's, of course, it's a little late now. I'll put that on the, on the video, but it's uh, applications of chapter 46 in Hendricks' book. Okay, in terms of the, um, uh, and, and this takes us back to what we were talking about in Romans chapter 14, is determining whether something is central to uh, Christian doctrine and the Christian life or whether something is peripheral. And so we have to be careful not to take things that are uh, narrowly related to a specific historical situation and then try to extrapolate from that a universal principle. And again, I'll go back to Second Chronicles 7.14 because I think that is, that's such a, a great clarification of this principle. And... and um, and this is a passage that is so embedded in evangelical American Christianity that, that we can take this and apply it to America. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In the whole context, this is uh, God's answer to Solomon's prayer. And it can't be applied to any other country because it is in itself an application of the Mosaic Law, which was the covenant between God and Israel. And um, and I know that that's hard for some people. Oh, I mentioned this earlier, and I had Jeremiah 17. It's Jeremiah 18. Um, but this is this, this can be a real battleground passage for some people. I remember. Uh, uh, years ago, when Tommy Ice and I were writing our book on spiritual warfare, uh, we were we had a section in there on claiming promises. And part of what we're teaching in there is the importance when you claim a promise, make sure it's a promise that God made to you and not to somebody else. And we use this as an example. And we developed this, and Tommy and I had, had come to a uh, common understanding of this passage uh, many, many years ago. And we have both been consistent and taught this many, many different ways uh, or in many different environments. But Tommy used this as an illustration of, of and teach in, in a lecture on hermeneutics uh, at chapel at Liberty Seminary. So he's teaching in, I forget the name of the church there, um, Thomas Road Baptist Church, and the, 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 the chapel is full. And he's using this as an illustration and teaching exactly what I've been teaching upon this. But he did not know. See, context is important. He didn't know that Jerry Falwell had chosen this as the year's prime verse to bring about uh, revival in America. <laughs> so Tommy's saying, you know, everything about whatever you've been doing all year is all wrong. Uh, the principle, there is a general principle, but we have to search the scriptures to find that general principle. And as I pointed out before, that general principle is in Jeremiah chapter 18. We look at other principles, for example, like the, the Romans 14 chapter dealing with, um, um, uh, dealing with doubtful things. And we need to uh, figure out what's the universal principle there because the cultural problem of eating meat sacrificed to idols is not one that is a problem for anybody in our culture. Uh, we don't even relate to that. So how do we universalize that? Well, Paul does that by the end of that particular chapter. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's, that's important. But a, a lot of these things that we deal with in terms of application, uh, 
um, come out of and will naturally fall out from having done the proper work in observation, interpretation, and, uh, and correlation. So let's end this first session here and take a break, and then we'll come back. And I want to look at some things in the workbook. I want to go back because we've never really talked much about Habakkuk, and I want to go back and look at those lessons in terms of application as well. So we'll, uh, we'll come back and look at that in about 10 minutes.